This episode is recorded on Jar Jar Wurrung country, and we want to pay our respects to the original creatives of this land and their elders past, present and future. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Country Creatives. We are your hosts, Reese Hendy and Caleb Maxwell. That's me. We are having a really awesome chat today to a filmmaker, Kylie Eddy, who has come up with a completely new way of planning, filming, editing, distributing films that breaks it. It really breaks away from the traditional methods. Yeah, it does. And uh, I'll let you know exactly what it is uh, called because we we dive into it in great depth. It is called The Art of Lean Filmmaking. So lean filmmaking is the principle and we dive into all sorts of things like objections, how it works, uh, is it tested, how you can find out more. Man, this is a good conversation. So strap in, let's get into it. Hey, how cool. I am I've been excited about this conversation for a long time because you are a filmmaker. <laughs> I love it. We're comrades in arms. Yes, we are. And you have I'm we're going to dive right into this in a little bit, but you have written a book and developed a system for filmmaking that is completely different to the conventional way of doing things. That's uh, that's a pretty uh, apt uh, kind of description, wouldn't you say? I love how you've described it. You describe it better than I do normally. <laughs> Righto. So first things first, Where what what is your background in the creative industries? Um, yeah, let, let's go with that. I mean, how far do you want me to go back? I have got quite... <laughs> We can go. We can, do you want to go back to my first job, my first legit job in the creative industries? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do we count working in a video store as like the? Because I feel like if you're a filmmaker working in a video store, unfortunately, they no longer exist. And at the time, like that was, I thought I had already reached the pinnacle of success to be working in a video store. It's like really the dream. And then I discovered there was such a job as essentially a sales rep for the distribution companies that sold the videos to the video stores. And I'm like, oh, I need, that's, that's the dream job. I need to step up. And so actually I am my first, I guess, job in the industry properly was I was a sales rep for Disney selling Disney videos. <laughs> In, I grew up in Western Australia, so I grew up in, um, I actually grew up in country Western Australia, but I, by this stage I was back in the big smoke of Perth and my region was all of Western Australia. So it was a pretty big uh, area to cover. Um, yeah, and I used to sell video. So we were at peak video time of The Lion King, The Little Mermaid. And you know what? I thought it would be a really glamorous job, but hmm, guess what? It was a lot of driving and then a lot of going out to the back of Big W and trying to find videos in the back of their store and building display cases. (laughs) (laughs) So Kyle, it sounds like you've obviously been a fan of film and video for a long time. What was there a pivotal moment when you realized like, this is, this is my future. I want to be embedded as a creative doing the making, not just the on selling of videos. (laughs) Well, I did want to do the making before the selling. So 
I grew up in little country towns in Western Australia. And just to add insult to injury, I went to school where my father was the principal. So you can imagine how many years of therapy that has taken to get over. We're essentially like we're in really small country towns, like, you know, 60 kids in the entire school and your dad is the principal. Needless to say, I spent quite a lot of time alone in the library reading books. And I think looking back on it now, I feel like that's where my imagination for storytelling and just living a lot in my own head really started. And then when we moved back to Perth so that my brother and I could go to high school, because these country towns didn't even have high schools, they were so tiny, we would have had to have gone to boarding school. We all moved back to Perth and suddenly I was like in the theatre class doing, you know, public speaking. Like I just got, I was a total like theatre nerd in school. And also, once again, aging myself a little bit, like this is when I guess the first video cameras were coming out that were possible for consumers. They were huge and obviously recording on tape. And finally, my dad being a principal paid off because the school had a VCR player and they they cost like thousands of dollars when they first came out. And in the school holidays, he bought the VCR player home, had a little remote that was attached by a cord. And I just literally did binge watching before binge watching was a thing and watched all, like I was obsessed with. So, and it was the, this is the mid eighties. So I was obsessed with The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and um, Less Than Zero and Tough Turf and basically a lot of films with James Spader in them. And then that was when I really was like, I just, how, how is this possible? This is what I want to be doing. That's so cool. Wow. All right. So wh- what steps did you take to get towards uh, making a film or learning about it? So I actually took a very traditional route. And I guess also because the internet didn't exist, um, it was a different time and I couldn't just learn from YouTube. Uh, so yeah, so I went to, um, I did a undergraduate bachelor of arts in media studies that included theory and also filmmaking. So I made a bunch of really awful student short films, really tragic, amazing, Um, and then, um, I guess I kind of, I've always had this sort of dual purpose where I've had kind of corporate gigs, I guess, to support my filmmaking gigs. Then I, you know, I got this job at Disney as a sales rep, but I was still kind of making films on the side. And eventually I got a promotion to move to Melbourne to be part of the marketing team for Disney. And that was really my, you know, I always wanted to (laughs) pull Perth. Really wanted to leave Perth and come to Melbourne. And, um, yeah, so I worked at Disney and I studied. I did a postgrad in screenwriting, professional screenwriting, and always was just making things on the side. So it's kind of just been this, yeah, ongoing passion. We've been privileged enough to listen to you speak at Conflux recently. So we've got an idea of how you're, you've taken that traditional method um, and now you're breaking the mould with a completely new method of creating movies. And can you tell us the moment where you realised the traditional method wasn't for you and, like, what made you want to change something in the industry? That's a, that's a really tough question to answer. I mean, we're actually focused on feature films for this, but we have we tested it first with short films. And I guess how um, we came to this was through my own personal 
trauma of making a micro-budget feature film. So I basically spent 15 years, um, you know, building up my experience and making short films and I was just obsessed uh, with making a feature film. And after doing that on a very small budget and with all of the challenges that it entails, it just didn't live up to the experience of what I thought it would be. And I feel like this is quite common for all creatives, where if you have a really big goal in mind, you've got to focus on the journey, not the destination. And once you get to the destination, you're like, oh, now what? Yeah, because I finished the film and I'm just like, oh, well, now it's going to get distributed. Now I'm going to go into festivals and now people are going to, you know, I'm going to get an agent and people are going to be calling me and wanting me to direct their films. Uh, Clearly none of that happened. I have no regrets of making my film. It taught me a lot, but it just, we're told a lot of things about what will happen when you do that that are not necessarily true. We don't really, we only hear about the success stories. So around this same time after going through this experience, my brother, who still lives in Perth, had really just started working in agile software development. And he was really so taken by how it really changed the way that people organized work and work together. And he was like, this is a great idea. You should apply this to filmmaking. And I was like, "Uh, that's bullshit. You have no idea what you're talking about. That's absolutely impossible. But because we're related and I couldn't really escape from him, he just kept chipping away and just kept talking about this idea And he just, I mean, ultimately he just wore me down and I'm very glad that he did because once I had this big paradigm shift, it really opened up my eyes to, yeah, why do we have to do it the same way? Technology has democratised filmmaking and yet the way that we organise the work of making a film and the way we work together hasn't really changed in the last 100 years or so. And I get it because it is not the sexy part of filmmaking. The sexy part of filmmaking is do we have we got drones? Is there some new camera gear? What about this? You know, the the focus is a lot on that versus this is a very, like, this is about the process of how we work. For a non-filmmaker like myself, I don't really know what the process of the traditional process kind of looks like. So in a really, in a real snapshot, and this will be a really good um, introduction into describing what agile is, but let's compare the two. um, If you describe it really briefly on what a traditional method is, and then we can maybe break down what agile is. Yeah, great. So in traditional filmmaking, it's a linear process. And that means that you can't move on to the next stage until the first stage is completed. And traditional filmmaking has five stages. It starts with development, which is really where you write the script and you raise all the money. Um, Pre-production is when you plan everything. Production is when you actually shoot. Post-production is when you edit. And then distribution is when you sell it and the audience finally gets to see it. So you can't really go um, you can't really go through those steps until you finish the last one. And it can take years to get through that, particularly the development phase. The average time it takes for a film to be made in Australia, a feature film, is about seven years. So that's how long we're talking to go through all of those stages. With lean filmmaking, the, the method that we've developed, we've really reimagined all of those steps and used agile and lean principles to make it into an iterative method. And what an iterative method means is that it's done in cycles. All of that work, we kind of combine into cycles and we call them make, show, adjust cycles. So in the make part of the cycle, you do all of that, you make, you make a version of the film. You start with lo-fi drafts. That's where you start. You make a whole version of the film and then in the show part you find fans and you get feedback from them. In the adjust, 
you talk about what you've learned and what you want to improve, and then you do it all again, gradually adding to the fidelity of the film and production values as you learn. Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And I know, look, it is, I think this is part of the challenge of, um, like, Reese, you talked about, you know, who else is doing this. And I think this is part of the challenge is because it is so different and it requires quite a lot of explanation, it is really challenging to get some adoption. We're not the only people who have been thinking about this. Um, There are definitely little pockets of people that we've found around the world who are really interested in this idea and have been investigating it as well. Uh, We're the only ones that we know of that have taken it this far and written a book and have an actual, like we've got a five-step method um, and have done so many experiments on it and have made two feature films using the process, but is definitely a challenging way <laughs> when everything you've learned as a filmmaker is kind of turned upside down. You re- uh, Caleb, you can probably relate to this. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, when I first heard about this, and I think this is one of the challenges um, that, you know, you're very aware of and one that you you went through, as you described with your brother, when he kind of said, you, you know, you should be doing this for the filmmaking industry, should be done differently. You were like, oi, oi, back off. Don't mess with the method. Don't mess with the sacred ways. <laughs> this is the way. Um, and that's, that's something that, um, I, you know, I wasn't conscious of, but when, when we first talked, and you introduced this method to me, I was so skeptical. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Who is this chick trying to mess with the the age-old process? And there was this just like this um, weird, un, unthought about, unconscious devotion to the way films are made um, that kind of put made me put up a bit of a barrier and a, and a defence against it, going, oh, but but this is just how people do it and it's like this epic journey and, you know, but when you kind of think about it, like there's a lot of things wrong and there's a lot of things that actually put uh, barriers in the way of success, right? From a from a non-filmmaker perspective, I just listened to your presentation was like, yeah, makes sense because I don't have any of that background to question it. <laughs> Caleb and Reese, you are like a, the perfect example of what normally happens. So particularly for people who who have who know about the agile principles and lean principles and so it's not just uh software development actually lean as a philosophy they're slightly different i'm using them a little bit you know interchangeably but they are slightly different principles they're a philosophy they're a way of working and lean started in manufacturing in the 70s late 60s and then was adopted by other industries so um, there's another very popular book called the lean startup which actually um, we were really inspired by which is about startups and really if you read that book and take out the word startup and put the word film in or potentially any other creative project like book or podcast um, the challenges are very very similar Um, And obviously, agile software development has really taken it to the next level. But yeah, so if people have any kind of those backgrounds, they're like, oh, yeah, totally makes sense. And for people who don't understand how films are made, they're like, oh, yes, why isn't everyone doing this? But for actual filmmakers who are hardcore, (laughs) they're like, no, absolutely not, which I, I mean, I understand because I was also sceptical because there's something weird that happens in the film industry. And let's face it, the film industry is amazing at PR. It's really what it does because why else would you get into such a bonkers business where it's so tough, you know, you devote years to, of your life to it and 
really only a small few succeed. And so I feel like there's a lot of mythology around it, which is very purposeful because it's about not really looking at the hard, cold, hard truth about what it means for filmmakers or what it means to make a film or who has the right to tell the stories, whose stories are being told on screens. And it has a lot of cultural value who tells the story on screens because it's such a popular medium. So I think once I too also was like started thinking about essentially these invisible ways of working that we take for granted and that are often told to us, well, that's just the way it's always been done. But here's a fascinating thing. It was just made up. Like it didn't come down from the heavens on stones saying this is how they must make a film it's just a bunch of people made it up with the tools that they had at the time and now we've got different tools i.e the internet and that changes things dramatically um and the cost and means of production and distribution are very accessible it's important to really look at how things have changed in that way I guess the final thing I'll say about this is I find it quite fascinating that filmmakers make up stories for a living and then have the goal to be like, you can't make up a new process. It's like, you're asking people to spend millions of dollars on something you've made up in your head and I can't talk about a new process for making films? Uh, What's that about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is, when put like that, that is quite uh, humorous. (laughs) Um, so let's just call out some of the issues, right, that that lean filmmaking, the model you've developed, uh, really circumvents or, or, or changes. So what are some of the major issues with the traditional way of filmmaking that maybe don't set uh, the people that are making it, uh, it and the film itself up for success? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is that filmmaking as an art form is very expensive and it requires a lot of resources and a lot of people. And so as soon as it's a very different art form from most others, like if you really want to write a book, you can just do it pretty low cost. Um, you know, street art, sort of similar kind of thing. Any Like, you know, you write, want to write a song. Now, obviously, if you want to go to a higher level, there's other sorts of barriers. But with filmmaking from the get-go, it's expensive and takes a long time often. And what that means is it's inaccessible to most, to the majority of people. And because of the way the process works, all of the money needs to be raised up front for something that you haven't actually tested. So the script, which is the foundation of what the film is made from, is full of untested assumptions. And that's how the budget is made. And that's how you know how much money is to be raised, but you haven't actually tested that with audiences. You haven't actually got it to the fidelity of film. So you're making all of these upfront decisions that are quite costly that you then will be executing for years down the track. So even if you find improvements or even if you realize down the track, oh, we need to change this, you kind of can't because you're locked into this plan. That's how you got the money. So what we're looking at doing is we flip it. So we actually look at starting very low-fi, starting small and really trying to challenge who's the audience for this film, which you have to do at the end anyway, but we just bring it right to the front. And what this means is by starting lo-fi and testing with the film and really trying to find a story that connects with fans, the production values can be added later. And what that means is you can start with little to no money up front. The more important problem to solve is can you find um, an audience for your story and can you find a small, we call them squads, of a cross-functional team that have the skills to make a film 
like trying to find those creative collaborators, that's quite challenging as well. So let's solve those problems first. And then we, so this means that it's like the problem of budget. Most filmmakers go, I can't make a feature film because I don't have the budget. Well, this kind of eliminates that straight away. And it means a whole lot of different people can start making films. (laughs) What I um, really, well, I see a connection between the reason why there's, the entry level into filmmaking is now a lot more accessible because, um, you know, everyone carries a video camera in their pocket. The entry level into the industry is eliminated because we have access to the technology which wasn't there in the past. So the, the process hasn't kept up with the technology at all. It's That's so true. The, the one thing, the most powerful issue that I've found from learning a bit about this process is the audience focus. The stakes on a feature film are humongous. Now, I I don't know the filmmakers personally involved in this film, so I'm just going to kind of call them out and give an example. Um, sorry, Taika Watiti and Chris Hemsworth. Um, the, the latest Thor film, right? I'll use that as an example. That these legendary creatives have gone a long, long time to develop this epic blockbuster feature film and it's released at cinemas and it flops. Why? Because it's bad. <laughs> but that's the first time any audience fan has ever seen it. And so this this huge millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into this thing and it all hangs in the balance on that that release. And sure, they probably do some testing and, and some adjusting at the end of the film, but it's, it's not able to test and adjust enough to, to fix some of the mistakes. As you were saying, Kylie, you can't change things. You can only change things a certain amount before you, you, you get out of the realms of your, your budget and your, and your scope and, and all of that sort of thing. So that pressure and scaling it back to, you know, closer to home, I'm sure you felt that pressure when you were, you know, developing your micro budget feature film going, you know, I'm, I'm making this thing. And like, what, what was that feeling like when you, you know, you shown it to your first audience or you're, you're premiering the film, you know, walk me through for someone who's never made one, a feature film, like, what does that feeling, you know, feel like? Oh, awful. <laughs> It's pretty terrifying. It's pretty awful, honestly. I did not have fun at my premiere of my film. It was like it was terrifying, genuinely terrifying. And yeah, that's real anxiety-inducing stuff, right there. Hey, well, you've just put. I mean, for me, I, I mean, I made my feature film very fast because I was like, I was so focused on it. It was probably four years of working on it, and yeah, to have all of and so it's not when you make the film, it's not just about the film. It's about what the film means and what it means to your career. And also we're told as filmmakers, you only get one shot. This is your one chance. You have to be perfect. It's so expensive to do it. Most people, A, don't make a feature film and B, trying to make a second feature film is even harder. And the stats are alarming, particularly if you're in any kind of marginalised group, i.e. women, person of colour, any kind, like person with a disability in the queer community, like anything other than basically a cis straight white man. So there's a lot riding on it and and you have no control over it. It's a very overwhelming feeling. And I guess, you know, there's two different scales here. I'm obviously really on this independent level. And then there's that big Hollywood system level. And 
I get why the, at that Hollywood level they can't really show an audience in the same way because of IP and because so much of the Hollywood studio system now is built on IP, i.e. pre-existing materials. You've got all of obviously all of the comic book remakes endlessly and also remakes of other uh, either you know TV shows or books or all of those things. So there's some a lot of IP issues in there. I get it. But the whole structure of the film industry, and this is why it's kind of maddening, it's built in. People know that most films won't work, but there'll be a couple of films that will absolutely go amazingly well that basically cover the costs of all those ones that failed. That's how the Hollywood system is built and expected. And though even those films that don't do well at theatrical, theatrical is really a marketing tool to sell it in other places, i.e. on streaming services, free-to-air. That's really what it's seen as. It's a really big marketing expense. But when you're an independent filmmaker and you want to make film, that is not a model that you can recreate. And that's what we're taught to re- – that's how I made my micro-budget feature film, like it was a Hollywood film. It's absolutely ridiculous. I shot it in regional Victoria with, like, two actors and 13 crew, and it's like, why? Why did we do it that way? <laughs> it's because we're told that's the only way, and it's completely impractical. Kylie, if you had to redo your feature film again – what would the process look like? Give me a few examples of what you did and how you would just tear it apart and do it completely differently. I think the biggest thing that I would do different, and it's more conceptually, is I think so the idea of a shoot, and for people who are not filmmakers, the shoot is when you're basically executing on all the plans that you have made, you know, in the script stage and in the pre-production stage. And what that means is you're often shooting out of order, you're shooting day for night, you're kind and you're trying to pack in, you've basically got a shot list and a shooting schedule that is normally packed. And to work a 10-hour day on a film shoot is an easy day. That is minimum like 10 hours, often it's longer and often it's six day weeks. And we're told this is the only way you can really make a film is to have these very, and you've got to get it perfect because you've only got so much time and then you lose all of the cast and crew. And so there's this immense amount of pressure for everyone to get it right. So that includes the, the grip, holding the microphone, the actors being perfect, the cinematography. Oh my God, a tree's moving in the background. Stop the tree moving. I mean, that is impossible. And that it's very, very stressful. And what we've done with lean filmmaking is essentially this idea of a shoot is completely deconstructed because it's iterative. We've got lots of chances to get it right. We kind of treat it more like an experiment. So we have a hypothesis of this is what we think will improve the film and this is how we're going to make it this time. And then we look at the results from that and then we make another decision and then we do it again. So all of these kind of competing things that when you're a director on a traditional film set, you basically have to have the answer for everything. You have to know everything. You just get pummeled with questions and you have to go, yes, we want the camera here. Yes, we want the lights here. Yes, the actors are doing this. I mean, really, You're just making the best guess that you can at the time with the information you have. Whereas with this model, it's like, you can go, well, let's try this and see if it works. We've got two great ideas. Let's try them both. And it just actually is so creatively liberating. And it also means it's so much more accessible because you don't have to do it. You can do it for a couple of hours every week. You can do it on the weekends. It's, it just really changes the game in such a big way. Yeah, massively. And one of the the big reasons that we're we're talking to you, other than I like talking to you, is uh, that I think that lean filmmaking, if adopted by regional filmmakers, is going to enable 
uh, those filmmakers to start working and getting content made, getting film made, getting their practice in, you know, building up their skill sets in a really accessible way. So I want to ask you for, for all those listening that might be thinking, oh man, righto, how do I wrap my head around this? There are some common obstacles and objections that I'm sure, you know, you you get quite often. What are the kind of the top three uh, objections that you would get from uh, a filmmaker who you are introducing this concept to? Caleb, what was your first objection as a filmmaker when you heard about the concept? Oh, I love that question. Yeah. Honestly, my first thought was, ah, oh, but if I show people then like the the surprise elements kind of gone from it and like the the interest will you know the audience won't be interested because they've already seen it a little a little bit um and am i gonna am i gonna be able to find people who really connect and give me good feedback yeah i would say that is very common and i think a lot of filmmakers that is the first that's the biggest hurdle this um, idea of bringing the audience in from the very beginning is very challenging for most people. And I understand it because as filmmakers, we're kind of taught that in a lot of ways that the audience is the enemy. And it sounds weird to say that because isn't that who we should be making a film for? But particularly in, I would say, Australia in film schools, the auteur theory is very prevalent and we're a kind of small cottage industry that's government funded. And what the auteur theory is really about is that I am the creator of the story and my creative vision, my artistic vision, is the most important thing and I will fight to the death to tell this story. And that is held up as the model that you should be following. And, of course, what that means is, well, you're not going to let the audience tell you, like, what to do. And if they don't get it, uh, that's on them. Like, they just haven't understood my incredible artistic vision. And it's kind of this weird self-fulfilling philosophy. And it's also, I get it because it's so hard to make a film. And so this is what we're taught is the way I totally understand where it comes from. And filmmaking, you've got to have a pretty healthy ego as well to be like, uh, I have a story worth telling that's like, you know, just give me a million dollars. And so it's kind of built into that. And because of the way that filmmaking is also structured, where the filmmakers themselves, we're kind of sold this bill where the determination of success is actually from what other people think, i.e. is it in a successful film festival? Did it get to go to theatres? And all of these things we can't control in the traditional model. And so when you're, that's your framework for success, a lot of people are going to fail. The benefit of bringing the audience in, even though it seems really uncomfortable, is that you get the opportunity to learn from them you get to ask those questions like, well, is there an audience for this? Because often people spend years and millions of dollars making a film and there is no audience. That's just the reality. And actually finding an audience is the biggest challenge that face filmmakers. There is so much competition. There's incredible free content on YouTube. There is, I mean, you're competing with other markets like gaming and then you've got, you know, social media. You know, we can just spend six hours watching TikTok. Like we don't need to watch a film. So finding an audience is actually the bigger challenge. Now, production values and, you know, doing all of that stuff is not as big a challenge as finding an audience. So how can we bring that in faster and how can we learn from them? And how can we ensure that there's something that we are passionate about, that we want to make a story about, but there's also an intersection 
with potential audience members. And your fear, Caleb, of like, well, no one's going to watch it more than once. Who's going to want to watch it? What we're really talking about is just finding some dedicated fans in the beginning and you don't need many. Like we're talking, you know, if you could get 10 people to watch the first draft of your film, that would be amazing. I think you'll find the bigger challenge is like no one wants to watch it. And it's better to know that up front. And then you can gradually grow and find a large audience. And ultimately... You know, if that's, this all works and you find something that really connects, there'll be a whole bunch of people who will just watch the final film and will have no clue about how it's made. That's the ultimate goal. So just showing a few people in the beginning, I think getting over that fear is very beneficial. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, and like showing showing a handful of people compared to it succeeding and being seen around the globe by millions of people is a pretty small trade-off really, isn't it? I was just going to say, like, well, with just with this uh, global success, I think what this also means is we have to redefine what success means for us and that that's what we really focus on in lean filmmaking and the reason why we bring the audience is, in is what is success for us, not what is arbitrary by the industry, i.e. we've got into this festival, but what does success look for us and our audience, which means it opens up to if our audience is in a place where films are not normally made and we've connected with them, there are all these incredible opportunities and we can define our own success. Yeah, look, I'm coming in with the hard good cop, bad cop here. Kylie, it sounds like you're just making the film three times instead of just planning it well and making it once. Isn't it just more, doesn't it take more time to make it three times? I get it a little bit, but I also think how does it actually save that much time in reality? Oh, I love it. I mean, you really have nailed the other big objection. <laughs> I think this is where it's important to think about filmmaking in its total context, i.e. going back to this idea that to make a feature film, in this country, at the moment, the average time is seven years. It is not fast. And the reason why people think it's fast for them is often, so the writer only works on it at the beginning, the editor might only work on it at the end, the kind of main cast and crew are kind of doing production, all working on it for relatively short times. It's really only probably the producer and the director, maybe the writer, who are working on it for a longer time. And what lean filmmaking does is... This is, the, this is, I guess, the other really big thing. It's the audience and it's the structure of um, the people doing the work. This is where it's a cross-functional, non-hierarchical squad, which really just means it's a group of people, we suggest between three to nine, who all have the skills to make the entire film. So that means the squad needs to be made up of someone who can write, who can direct, who can produce. There's an actor or two. There's a cinematographer, an editor, and uh, someone who can do marketing. And often it's a combination of those people that we're slashy, so we have multiple skills. And then we all work together and our responsibility is delivering the film together. So actually in the context, it is way shorter, but it does require a very different way of thinking. And I guess this idea of we're going to be making it three times we really have to just think of it as drafting. Like instead of spending all this time and energy drafting a script, which is not the end product of a film, the script is really just a blueprint to be able to get us to the film. Let's get to the film quickly and use that as our drafting tool. And the reality is you can't learn until you try. And if we take, for example, the idea of a science fiction film where someone is disappearing to go try time travelling, 
you write that on a script, how do you execute it on the film? It could be executed in a multitude of ways. So that's what we're trying to experiment with and, and trying it different ways. It's much more creatively freeing than having to be perfect. And also if we're just being efficient, like shoots are very efficient, but if we're being efficient and no one sees the film, does it really matter? Who cares if we're, we've kind of optimized for almost the wrong thing. Like in the film industry, we're very good at planning, but to what end? It dives into um, a little bit of the non-hierarchical kind of uh, structure, which can be a bit of a rub to, you know, the the person who sees themselves as the auteur with the creative vision and um, follow my lead, all ye mighty, mighty people. Uh, we will go and do this and I will lead you. <laughs> that can be quite a struggle because, um, you know, that's, as you said, that's what we've been uh, taught and people have been led to believe that if they've got the creative vision, then, you know, they must hold it and defend it and um, everyone else is only kind of just necessary to get their vision uh, done if you could do it yourself then you should probably just do it yourself but you can't so you better bring some people with you the journey I've gone on in in business and and uh, and creatively is finding the joy of collaborating man it is so much more freeing and enjoyable to draw on people's skills that you don't have and build something together that you couldn't have done yourself. And it and it doesn't rest all on your shoulders. There's a team getting it done. That's kind of how I, I kind of overcame that objection as I just imagined what would it look like to bring people that had complementary skills to me that would think of things differently to me that I could, you know, I'm, I, I would still have a, a major role in this, but I'm, I'm working together with a team to get it done rather than the pressure and the responsibility uh, all resting on, on me. Yeah, I think that's such a fascinating idea as well. And it really, for me, reframes what leadership is. Because as a director, you still need to be the leader in the squad and you still, but it really kind of becomes more of, we like to say you're a coach or in um, agile kind of world, it's called a servant leader. I put that in uh, quotes. Um, and so your job is really, so in the current model, the director, like everyone is there to serve the director. And that's a hierarchical model. The director is at the top, maybe the producer because they've got the money. Like, so, you know, the and it's really like everyone else on the cast and crew is there to serve the director. In this model, the director is there to serve everyone else. How can the director support, facilitate, collaborate and protect the team structure and also the audience feedback? And that and work in a transparent way. And let me tell you, that is not for the faint-hearted. It's really challenging. It's much easier to just go, go do this. But actually working in this way requires a lot of skill, compassion, empathy, incredible leadership. And once you're willing to do that work, actually you have true collaboration. Because I think in the creative industries and certainly in filmmaking, a lot of the objections I get, it's like, oh, we're already collaborating. It's a collaborative field, of course. But it's not really in this kind of – it's collaborating to an extent, yes, but at the end of the day on a shoot, it's the director's decision. And once again, working in this way in a squad, decisions still have to be made, but they're just made in a different kind of way where everyone can have their input. That doesn't mean that everything is going – you're going to be done that way, but at least you can make informed decisions because you have all of the information and it really changes the dynamics. Mm, I was thinking about how – 
the, the feedback cycle is really important for that to run because who you are serving is actually the audience at the end of the day, the people that you want to respond well. And so you need those feedback cycles to make some kind of rational decision, you know, as a director taking in everyone's input and finding a happy medium and negotiating what the next steps are. But you've got a reference point of what the audience actually thought and what their feedback was. So it's kind of ties a nice little closed loop in the cycle that way that if it's up to just one person's um, creative discretion, then, you know, there could be a hundred better ways to do it. But at the end of the day, who cares? I'm making the decisions. Let's do it this way. Whereas if you've got, you know, some feedback to refer back to, it really is like a closed loop the way that, and you could reiterate that each time and um, develop it further and further. Yeah, that's really so true. And look, a lot of times when you're working on shoots and you're making decisions, you're really tired, you're really stressed out. The creative part of your brain actually shuts down on those. And that's why everything has to be planned ahead of time. So the creativity on traditional filmmaking happens months, years in the past before you get to the shoot. On the shoot you're executing because it's so stressful and so labour-intensive, your cognitive function for making creative decisions is impaired at the end of the day and it's actually – that's not when the creativity happens. It happens when you're doing the planning and then when you have to edit and then you have to reshoot and you have to kind of recreate the film in the edit suite. But with movie filmmaking, we can kind of take more creative liberties. We can really explore different opportunities. We can kind of try some – you know, just try different ways to get to places. And I've just found that very refreshing and fulfilling because actually I never work, want to work on a traditional film set ever again. It's very stressful. I don't like it. This way you get the best of both worlds. And I think what is important for me to say to the filmmakers listening is that it sounds a little bit airy-fairy and a little bit woo-woo. In the book we have very specific structures on how to do it and I think and, and actually how you get feedback and the kind of feedback we're talking about. And I think filmmakers are very fearful of, like, um, the kind of feedback they'll get. But it's structured in such a way where you're just getting the information and then as the creative, you decide what you do with the information. So it's having that information so that you can make more informed decisions. And if you still want to do it a certain way, then you can still do that. And maybe you have to find a different audience. Maybe you haven't kind of got it targeted right and you can kind of pivot to something different. So it's just having that informed, um, enough data to make informed decisions. And what's the name of that book if people want to look into it a bit further, Kylie, while we're on that topic? Why don't we name drop it in? So it's called The Art of Lean Filmmaking, An Unconventional Guide to Creating an Independent Feature Film, available wherever you buy books. Yeah, and so really I guess the book is... The first part is the philosophy. We have core values around what is lean filmmaking and what is the philosophy. And then the bulk of the book is a five-step method that is very structured on how you make an independent feature film using this model. And in it is included a lot, like examples of how you run feedback interviews, the kind of questions to ask, and then the kind of, we call them ceremonies, the ceremonies that you run as a squad to make sure that you're getting the most um, impact and making the decisions in a very structured way. Did you uh, did you use the agile method in your book writing as well as your filmmaking? Well, funny you say that. We did. Um, and that's why I know it works for other creative projects. It's really, I mean, it is very meta. It's like, oh, we're writing a book about agile philosophies, applying it to filmmaking and using the lean method of publishing. So actually there is a platform called Lean Pub and it's essentially 
for publishing, what we're doing for filmmaking, where you can put drafts of your book online um, and people can subscribe to get drafts of the book as you write it. So every time you write a new draft and post it, it gets sent out to them to be updated and they can give you feedback. And, yeah, so that's what we use to write the book um, in the first. So I think we published maybe four or five drafts on Lean Pub first, and we kind of had this goal in mind that we wanted to get to 100 readers um, on that platform before we felt confident that then we would, I mean, and then you've got to really make the decision, like with any kind of creative thing. It's like we could keep working on it for a long time, but we've got as much as we can know now to put in the book before we learn more. So, yeah, that's and that's when we went down the self-publishing road. That's amazing. I didn't even know that you did that. That's very cool. All right, so I want to just dispel this thought that I know you're thinking, yes, you person listening, this is all very well and good and what a great theory, but have you have you tested it? I don't like it. Is this just, you know, written on pages? Does it work? Does it work? I mean, it works surprisingly well. David and I were really shocked at how well it works. And when we're there coaching people through it, it's just like, wow. It's actually, it's actually way easier to do it than it is to talk about it or read the book about it. It's much easier to actually just do it. And a lot of those objections get overcome very quickly. And when you see the benefits for yourself and you finally it clicks, it's like, oh, actually getting audience feedback is actually fantastic once you make that connection you just don't want to go back so we experiment I guess for the book we've basically spent the last 10 years experimenting testing doing a ton of our own feedback interviews with filmmakers and we made a bunch of uh, short films in a program that we called a filmmakerthon which is really a tech hackathon for filmmakers and then we also ran a micro budget feature film accelerator program where we had two squads develop their feature films in 15 weeks and we used those films as as case studies in the book and look I guess this is where we got to the point with the book where we're like we think it works it works we've proved that it works on features this is kind of like our sweary textbook for how to do this And now we're in the next phase of like, how can we encourage people to put this into practice so that we can get more films made? I love it. So you've you've done some, you've got the case studies, you've got the learnings from that, you've tested on a few films and it's worked really well. I can speak from experience in your presentation at Conflux, you showed some examples of a film um, and you showed three examples or four examples of a scene that had been, um, you know, the first draft that they went through, what they did on the second and the third. And uh, it blew me away, actually. I watched the first scene. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see a lot of issues here. And then the second one, I was like, oh, yep, they've kind of scaled it back. They're they're kind of learning. They're, They're doing things differently. But then on the final one, Oh man, it was a thing of beauty. I watched that scene, even though I'd seen the scene a few times already in different um, iterations. I watched that scene at the end. I was like, I care about the characters. This is a story. And what I saw in the progression, you know, not knowing really any of the backstory of the, the, um, what the journey was like for the filmmakers. I just saw from that scene that they got to a stage where the story became king and they actually told something that was people cared about and they were building characters that were real people. They weren't focusing on, you know, a fancy way of, you know, a fancy production value of how to, you know, do a 
car crash or make someone disappear or, you know, visually interesting things. They, they got to the stage where the story mattered most and it was powerful. It was really cool. They did a really great job. Um, yeah, that was one of the films in our accelerator program that we use as a case study. It's called Time Apart. And, yeah, it's pretty impressive what they achieved. You can, where can you watch that? That's out, isn't it? It is. So you can actually watch it on Amazon Prime if you have Amazon Prime. It's called Time Apart. It's a romantic drama sci-fi film, <laughs> Melbourne made. Definitely check it out. That's super cool. And I love, you know, it, it has got a streaming kind of release and, and deal. Like it's 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 not just some backyard spare time thing, although I, I heard from the process it was, it, you know, that was the time that they were able to do it in was staggering. Well, I think as well this is part of um, what makes our model quite challenging is because we believe in failing fast and it's really hard when you have a model where actually failing is succeeding um, because, you know, a lot of – Films are, you know, very expensive and take a lot of time, but we're also trying to circumvent that this is the power of doing it in cycles. You can actually learn when something's not working and something, you, how much effort am I prepared to put in and what's the return? And it's okay to quit because if you haven't figured it out yet, there's no need to keep investing in it. And I think Time Apart is a really great case study is because they ultimately decided that it got to the point where they could release it and they were like, we could spend a lot more time and energy and money on this. Are we ever going to really recoup it? And the answer is no. It's like, well, then that's okay. And they really used it as an incredible learning experience and which I think most filmmakers wanting to make a feature film, actually making your feature film is where you do the learning. It's not thinking about it or planning or, you know, hoping and dreaming. It's like, let's get some films made because then you can actually make some decisions about what you want to be doing. And what they decided after that was like, we want to have a YouTube channel. <laughs> we don't want to make feature films. And they've got an incredibly successful YouTube channel um, that has got, you know, hundreds of millions of views and they're making a full-time income from and but I'm not sure they I think they would have always had in their back of their mind I'm not talking out of school for them that they were like we want to have the credibility of being feature filmmakers and that for them to be able to actually do that and then go oh actually no this is what we want to do was fan like I think that's a fantastic outcome yeah that's super cool I love that um I'm conscious that you know uh -huh. A small percentage of our listeners are filmmakers. How is this uh, kind of process, and I might throw to you, Reese, as well, um, how does this process fit or sound from other creative industries? Is it a, a new thing? Is it already happening? What What's the deal? How is this relevant to other industries? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, I think filmmaking is a, the most traditional art form in that respect, hence why we've kind of really focused on that and it's our passion. But as we've talked about, publishing is also very traditional and there is a lot of opportunity in publishing to also also be using this kind of method I think partly because as well um, it's a similar kind of challenge you know it's that trying to find the audience and getting that feedback and being able to um, really embrace that because obviously when you're writing you're still doing drafts um, but getting that audience feedback and also having the technology to do that. Like, you know, we self-published our book. Um, there's an, there's multiple platforms where you can do that. And essentially, you know, it's on all platforms. Just it's a legit book. 
you can't you really can't tell the difference what's different is that you don't have a publishing company who's you know doing the marketing for you you have to really do your own marketing but even now with publishing companies you still are responsible for doing a lot of marketing if you want to drive book sales so musicians so musicians like there are a lot of other creative industries where they get audience feedback kind of immediately i.e. they're performing on stage and so they can get kind of that instant visceral feedback. I'm writing a new song, I'm going to test it at a gig and then I'm going to get that immediate feedback. Stand-up comics, you know, often theatre goes through iterations. I actually think that theatre does this quite well as well. Often they start with some kind of workshop and maybe more of a fringe-style show before it kind of tours. So there are a lot of other industries who already have a bit more of the audience feedback built in but that's not to say that we couldn't make it more structured and go even deeper into it Mm. yeah I love that well as we wrap this uh this chat up I love the process I'm so thankful that you agreed to jump on uh on and chat to us about it Kylie because I think there is so much opportunity for you know microcosms of filmmakers in in especially regional areas where you know access to ready funding and things could be challenging and 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 all that sort of stuff and you might be filmmaking on the weekends when you know th- this process enables so much of that to to happen and happen faster and happen better so that there isn't that massive risk and anxiety inducing kind of process that doesn't set you up to succeed. One of my last random questions is, uh, when's the audio book coming? Well, I mean, this is the challenge of self-distribution, isn't it? If we have to pay for the audio, audio book. All right, Kylie, let's set it up. Come on into the studio. Uh, let's read this thing. Uh, let's put it. Let is. Let's get lean. The art of lean filmmaking on. Uh, what is it? Audible. Let's do it. I love it. I mean, you can. So we do have a course version, an online course version, which is essentially it is like an audio version because you do get to hear my dulcet tones. And essentially, there's 40 video lessons, and it's essentially the book in an online course model. So that's on our website at leanfilmmaking.com. Like if book reading is not really your thing, the online course version will give you the same information in a different kind of way. There you have it, the amazing Kylie Eddy from Lean Filmmaking. And if you would like to explore this innovative method for making films, publishing books or any other kind of creative endeavour, you can jump on the links via emporiumcreativehub.com.au slash podcast. As always, we are very grateful to have you tuning into Country Creatives, a podcast conceived and hosted by Caleb Maxwell and Reese Hendy and produced by myself, Amy Chapman, with the wonderful help of the Emporium Creative Hub at 25 Mitchell Street, Bendigo. We look forward to you tuning in in a couple of weeks' time when the next episode drops. We'll see you then. Thank you.